0: Hello, I'm Paula, and welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a podcast by the WCCM, about what it means to live a contemplative, spiritual, and Christian life while still playing an active role in our modern world. Join us for conversations with fellow contemplatives in action from around the globe. In this episode, Lawrence Freeman begins by identifying what we may feel about St. Paul. Is his complex personality so different from ours? This podcast is part of the first session from the online series, Seeing What St. Paul Saw, held in 2022. You can listen and watch the full series on WCCM Plus at wccmplus.org. We hope you enjoy it.
1: When I mentioned to uh, someone that I was going to be giving these talks on St. Paul, their first reaction was, I hate St. Paul. And I assume that most of you don't hate St. Paul, otherwise, you, you wouldn't have bothered to uh, come, come to this talk. But many people have a very um, confused, or hostile, or angry attitude to St. Paul for various reasons. <clears throat> but I'd like to um, challenge that. I think it's because of a few isolated passages in his letters. And I think it's also because we generally only know St. Paul through little extracts that we hear read in church, rather than sitting down with him and reading a whole letter uh, right through. So I'd like to, in this uh, first talk, Address this question of St. Paul and why he seems a contradiction to us or to many people. And of course, he is a contradiction or he has many contradictions in himself. He speaks about love and he can be really angry with people. Uh, But we need to understand where that anger comes from, where that hurt comes from in him. And I think if we give him a chance, and above all, if we encounter him directly, personally, ourselves, we can be quite amazed at the person we are encountering. With all his contradictions, uh, we can find him a most powerful inspiration and teacher. And this is what happened to John Main after John Mayne began to meditate again after some long absence <clears throat> from meditation, this would have been in about 1969, seven, 1970, he uh, sort of came home, he said, and he reread the New Testament, and he, that meant largely the Gospels, and, of course, the letters of St. Paul. And he read them, he said, as if for the first time, now in the light of his own experience of rediscovering meditation and being led very quickly to a deep and, and enlightened space within himself. And, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning of the meditation, as he read the uh, New Testament, in the light of his rediscovery uh, or his, his, his coming back to the path of meditation and the way of the mantra, certain words or phrases uh, jumped out at him with particular vividness and power. And one of those was the word Maranatha. And this is the word that he generally recommended as an ideal word to uh, begin meditation with and uh, this was the word that he found at the uh, closing of the second letter to the corinthians which we read this is the uh, this is the copy of of the new testament that john may used and uh, i'll be using this to, for my Readings or quotes from St Paul during these talks, and as you can see, it's just about holding together with some uh, sellotape. Uh, but uh, as you can also see, if I if you can see it, how I don't know, he has he has underlined or sidelined many passages from St Paul, and of course the Gospels as well. Uh, and in different ways, sometimes with a, a red pencil with a ruler. I think I might have done those for him, uh, or just just by the, by the use of his, of his uh, pen as he was reading. So, I hate St. Paul. Usually we say that if you are a meditator, and if you also happen to be a drug dealer or a human trafficker or someone who preys on vulnerable people or exploits the poor, or you are a serial uh, liar and uh, fraud, that eventually you're going to find a contradiction in that trying to meditate, and trying to keep up those kind of practices. And you will eventually either give up meditation or you will give up those kind that kind of activity. Now, we know how important and inspiring St. Paul was to the early teachers, the early fathers of the church, to the great Christian mystics, and as I said, to John Main himself. who used him all of these great teachers in our tradition use saint paul to enrich and illustrate their teaching and to come to a deeper consciousness of what their own experience was showing them so if that's the case and we say oh i hate saint paul he was i'll tell you what people say about him in a minute if we Hate him, then there's something, contradiction, there's some contradiction in ourselves. Because this person is unlikely to have been a misogynist, a woman hater, a homophobe, a defender of slavery, or anti Jewish, all of which he is accused of being and sort of dismissed in that way could he have been the profound visionary and dedicated servant of jesus that uh, the christian tradition has recognized him to be if he had these rather fatal flaws so i think sometimes when people say they hate him It's as if uh, they're trying to pull down a statue uh, and they've identified that statue with things, particularly contemporary um, beliefs, contemporary values, uh, that they think he is contradicting. And this statue, I think, is not a realistic one. Maybe this says more about contemporary ideas and attitudes and less about Paul. And maybe it also suggests that the people who want to pull down this rather imaginary statue um, haven't really encountered him in the light of their own experience. as john main says the best way to uh, verify the truths of your own exp- of your faith in your own experience is through meditation and i think if we if we encounter paul through his letters and with some knowledge of the uh, conditions of the first century very different world from our own very different mental space from our own a very different attitude to religion in a society that really didn't have the idea of the secular that we have or of science and religion as being opposed. so really a very different world. Um, but if we if we can encounter Paul with a little bit of knowledge of his context, but but most of all, We don't have to become scholars of the early church. But I think most of all, we do need to be able to relate what we read in St. Paul to our own experience. And interestingly, if we do have a, a contemplative practice, like daily meditation, and we are growing in Christian faith and tradition, I think it won't be very long before we begin to feel like John Cassian in the fifth century, who said that when I began meditating, I thought this was going to be really easy. And I discovered it was simple, but not easy. But the first thing I discovered was that I was reading scripture in a quite different way, as if I had written it myself. And I could see now into the bones and marrow of the the body of Scripture. And I think what this is saying is that the experience, the knowledge, the consciousness that we uncover and open and develop in meditation is the same knowledge, the gnosis, that we find in St. Paul, for example. So let's try to meet St. Paul, um, and at least if we do have some major reservations about him, uh, given the benefit of the doubt to begin with, and I think we may all benefit from that. So I'd like to just begin by looking at a couple of those stereotypical um, prejudices that many people have about St. Paul. The best way to get behind the stereotype of, for example, St. Paul the misogynist, didn't like women, or the stereotype of Saint, the St. Saint Paul who distorted the real teaching of Jesus. He was the real founder of Christianity. Jesus didn't really want to found a religion, but St. Paul... Uh, charged off um, and started this religion. The best way to get behind these stereotypes is I think to read Paul yourself and I hope that these talks will help you to do that. And I'm going to suggest at the end of each talk uh, one particular letter that you could read uh, in between that talk and the next. And that you can, uh, we can maybe also will set up a uh, a meeting room on WCCM, my WCCM site. Um, that that's uh, not my WCCM site. It's called my WCCM part of the website, and um, that uh, those who want to can meet and discuss their reading of that letter. Um, in the in the weeks or the time in between the talks. So I hope these talks will inspire you to do that. Not just listen to the extracts that we hear in churches, but to read a whole letter uh, and all the letters. So that's just a little bit of uh, information. Scholars don't agree 100% on which are authentic letters of St. Paul and which are disputed, uh, the disputed letters would be attributed to St. Paul, but written after him, uh, perhaps by people who were influenced by him. I don't think they were they were frauds, but they were saw themselves in the Pauline tradition and felt well this is okay to to call it a letter of St. Paul. Um, the three letters which are Most disputed are the two letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus, called the Pastoral Epistles. Um, But these also were accepted by the early church fathers, the anti Nicene church, the very early church fathers. So, of the 13 letters that are attributed uh, to St. Paul, the ones that are undisputed. Um, are Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, uh, Thessalonians, and the letter to Philemon. Rome Williams, actually, in his very wonderful little book on St. Paul, um, is easier that, about accepting them all to some degree. So I don't think we have to get too worked up about what are the uh, definite letters of Paul and which aren't, but certainly these uh, ones i mentioned are the ones that we can confidently start with. The seven undisputed ones are there to read, to help us to form our own personal response to, above all, the message of Paul, that's most important, But also to the personality and the vision and the thought of this quite extraordinary human, individual, and religious genius. Karen Armstrong um, said that she began her, her study of Paul in depth when she was doing a TV series of him some quite a few years ago, I think. And she was uh, convinced that Paul had really harmed early Christianity, that he had ruined the original loving teaching of Jesus. she would set up this institution and uh, full of, you know, conflict and so on. And that was her starting point. That she's, and she was walking, going around, I think, with this television crew in the footsteps of St. Paul, where he had traveled. He was a he was a frequent traveler. Um, <clears throat> he didn't have um, Zoom, so he had to travel. And uh, But as she followed in his footsteps, she changed her mind. She wanted to pull down this imaginary statue of Paul. But as she saw him, read him in his personal context, Uh, she said this changed. And she says, in fact, as I followed in his footsteps during the filming, I grew not only to admire, but to feel a strong affinity with this difficult, brilliant,
0: and vulnerable man.
1: So I don't think we have to spend a lot of time defending him. But let's take one example, which is the most common one that people uh, prejudice in a way, or, or opinion that people have, or why they might say, I hate him, or I don't like him. And that is uh, his misogyny, his attitude towards women. Uh, and Karen Armstrong, in her book on Paul, is called Paul the misunderstood apostle. Um, she she deals with this, I think, very well. Um, this is the kind of passage that we've heard in church, probably, and we shiver when we hear it, and we think, my God, what a, what a terrible person St. Paul was. Um, So this is it. It's the 1 Corinthians uh, chapter
0: 11.
1: Um, He says, I, I commend you for always keeping me in mind and maintaining the tradition I handed on to you. But I wish you to understand that while every man has Christ for his head, woman's head is man, as Christ's head is God. A man who keeps his head covered when he prays or prophesies brings shame on his head. A woman, on the contrary, brings shames on her head if she prays or prophesies bareheaded. It is as bad as if her head were shaved. If a woman is not to wear a veil, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for her to be cropped and shaved, then she should wear a veil. A man has no need to cover his head whereas woman reflects the glory of man, and so on. So what on earth is all that about? Well, you might well ask, if you read the whole letter, this passage just seems to be inserted. It doesn't really follow on from any previous argument or connect with anything else. It's badly argued, it's badly expressed, and this is not what Paul is usually like. Some scholars consider it to be an addition, um, something that's been put in uh, and moved around in different manuscripts. It occurs in different places in the the text of the letter. Uh, This is also true in chapter 14, where um, uh, the same kind of thing uh, happens in... um, First Corinthians. So, but here and in that other passage, it's quite clear that he shows no difficulty with women teaching. Um, Although in another text, it seems as if he does. He contradicts himself. But is he contradicting himself, or is there a, a, a mess here? Overall, Karen Armstrong suggests uh, it may well have been a, uh, uh, a local issue or an inserted text at a later date. It doesn't really suggest the real poor. Karen Armstrong suggests it was, it was not about forcing women to wear a hijab but about male and female hairstyles. Now you think you might think, well, why is that so controversial? Um, well, it was in in Corinth at that time, which was a remarkably um, different place from other parts of of, the, of, of that region. Men had started wearing their hair long in Corinth, and Paul might have been saying. Actually, women don't have to look like men when they pray or when they teach or when they preach. Um, when I read that, I thought of, you know the, the clerical dress may not be an exact analogy, but w- women priests, you know also wear the dog collar these many many do some do. and um So, and that's a sensitive subject when you start talking about what people are wearing, should they wear it, should they not wear it? The point is really that these are uncharacteristic and and disputed passages, the meaning of which we can't really get to anyway because we just don't have all the details of the local conditions, the, the culture, The issues and the the controversies of the time, but what is very clear is that that Paul is not saying, except in one brief and contradictory passage, that women should not should not teach or preach in church. And many other passages in St. Paul show him. Respecting women, leading prayer, and that they were they had leadership positions in the little communities, or they call them churches now, but they were little communities, almost like meditation groups, uh, uh, which which we um, w- which um, which he had formed and was caring for. Okay, another another example uh, of how he can be misinterpreted also in the letter to the corinthians because this was this was a remarkably um well it was a bit like san francisco in the 60s for the gay world i suppose or the 70s probably in the gay world um corinth was a, was a place famed for its sexual license and uh yeah you know uh, immorality uh and uh, promiscuity so in this pa- famous uh, in this passage uh on marriage we have to keep that in mind this passage for example
0: It is a good. He says
1: that each man have his own wife, and each woman her own husband, because there is so much immorality. The husband must give the wife what is due to her, and the wife equally must give the husband his due. The wife cannot claim her body as
0: her own; it is her husband's.
1: But Equally, the husband cannot claim his body as his own. It is his wife's. Do not deny yourselves to one another. Uh, sexual relations. Except when you agree upon a temporary abstinence in order to devote yourselves to prayer. This is something we've kind of lost touch with at least Culturally, the idea that uh, a couple who are spiritually united and praying may choose to have periods of sexual abstinence. Afterwards, you may come together again. Uh, All of this, I say, and so this is not Paul being uh, a male tyrant, All of this, I say, by way of concession, not command. He's not married, he says. Probably his attitude to marriage was due to the fact that at this point in his life, he was expecting the second coming of Christ to happen within his lifetime. He had this burning sense of urgency. I should like you all to be as I am myself. But everyone has the gift God has granted him or her, one this gift and another that. To the unmarried and to widows, I say this, it is a good thing if they stay as I am myself, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. Better be married than burn with vain desire. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. As I said at the beginning, you can listen and watch the full series Seeing What
0: St Paul Saw by subscribing to WCCM Plus at wccmplus.org. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.